Welcome to the 30% Podcast. We are a podcast about goals to create a 30% local food system across the country. From New York to Illinois, from Brazil to Boston, and to the Hawaiian Islands in the Mid-Pacific, these and similar goals have been long established by state and local governments. What do these goals mean? How can they be accomplished? And why are they important? We'll explore those issues in this series. In this season, we focus on Hawaii's goal embedded in its statewide Aloha Plus challenge to double its local food production by 2030. By most accounts, that means to get to 30% local. Why is this important to Hawaii? The island state is currently heavily dependent on imported food to feed its over 1 million residents and to host millions of tourists who annually swell the population by a factor of 10. This dependency on global imports is a legacy of an industrialized monoculture agriculture system which culturally dominated the U.S. and Hawaii in the 19th and 20th centuries. As you'll hear in this season, before the imposition of Western norms and rule in the islands, Hawaii was able to sustainably feed a population of nearly 1 million in a holistic and environmentally sound state of self-sufficiency. What can we learn from Hawaii as an example for a reorientation of our global food system? In this episode, we have the benefit of an illuminating conversation with Kamuelo Enos, the director of the newly formed Office of Indigenous Innovation at the University of Hawaii. Kamuela is the son of a native Hawaiian activist, a community leader who persisted in reclaiming and restoring the then disappearing native Hawaiian culture in its own home, once the sovereign kingdom of Hawaii. The era in which Kamuela's father made his mark is now known as the Hawaiian Renaissance. The activism of that time led to a constitutional convention in 1978, in which the Hawaii state constitution was amended to restore Hawaiian language as an official language of Hawaii, and to among other things, create the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and to write into the constitution, the Hawaiian principles of malama aina or stewardship of the land as a doctrine called in Western jurisprudence, the public trust doctrine. These efforts have led to a landmark Supreme Court case protecting the rights of subsistence fishermen and environmental stream flows. To the rebirth of Hawaiian language, which was on the verge of extinction, but is now spoken with fluency by modern generations of Hawaiians. The 1970s also saw the remarkable revival of the traditional Hawaiian method of wayfaring, often called celestial navigation. What can we take from those aspects of traditional Hawaiian knowledge and practices that would be relevant for today? And how are they relevant to our food system? How does this relate to a collective target of a more self-sustaining food system at a level of 30%? We'll discuss this with Kamuela and with our subsequent guests. With Kamuela, we delve deeply into the refreshed perspective he brings on the layering or infusion of valuable ancestral practices into modern society. We discuss the importance of being rooted in a respectful relationship with the earth. To prepare us to receive Kamuela's insights, we begin with a chant well-known in Hawaii called Ehomai. Ehomai is an oli or chant. Ehomai was composed by Edith Kanaka Oli, a Hawaiian cultural and language expert. This oli is often used at the beginning of an event or special gathering to help focus energies and properly receive wisdom. And now, as we prepare to listen to Kamuela, Ehomai.
I think intrinsically the Office of Indigenous Innovation puts out a pretty bold statement. The practices of our ancestors, if applied in contemporary times and being allowed to um, be deployed in contemporary structures, but keeping ancestral frameworks and intentionality, invariably will be considered innovation. An example of Indigenous innovation is the Hupua system. The systems that were created by the Kupuna elders of Hawaii as they moved up from Southern Pacific and settled on the islands, allowed Hawaii to be self-sufficient not only on an island, but each valley was a hyper-localized political structure where no trade needed to be happened between valleys. People took care of everything in their own valley. Their complex carbs, their lean proteins, the building material. Yeah, they had everything. So you mentioned the Ahupua'a, which is a, a unit. Um, right. So if you want to put it in those kinds of terms, it was a governance unit that went from the governance mountains to the unit. ocean, right? It was a governance unit. It was an ecological. And mm-hmm. The governance, the economy of pre-contact society was your ecology. Mm-hmm. If we are going to live on islands, we can't practice extractive tree. <laughs> you have to practice regenerative systems. So I think the first opportunity for this office is in translation mm-hmm. um, and, and allowing people to really understand ancestral practice as a seat of innovation. The second and the primary, though, is equity. Mm. It's this idea of how do we reposition these practices as sciences and technologies how do we understand the lineal descendants of these practices and the work that they're doing as vital? And how does the university show up in its research and its spaces of education and all these other facets of it as a broker between education and industry to normalize that thought? So basically what we've been asked to do is to, and how I see the work is kind of identifying the resources external to the state that can come in through the Office of Research, and even within the state, actually, that can come into the Office of Research, be distributed to our, the multiple facets of the university to directly invest in community agency. And, you know, I see that there are two tiers of innovation that we can work with. The first tier is, tier one is innovation of the ancestors, the OPA system, the navigation system, the way we understood our lunar and celestial cycles, and therefore planted and created resilience, our water management system, are all innovations. And the responsibility of the university to that set of innovations is to protect the IP, the community. Intellectual property, yeah. yeah. The second is a tier two. It's an understanding how they take these things that no one owns, but are held in trust of the Hawaiian people, these knowledge systems, and turn them into programming that can be invested in. And how does the university show up and invest in these in these organizations to then uh, bring in resources, increase the enrollment of students that are entering into the university that supports this type of research, increase the type of um, resources that are coming into the state for this research, mm-hmm. but really centering at the end of the day, communities owning their ancestry and deploying it in a way to restore these generative systems that used to exist. And if we reframe this notion of not using the word Hawaiian culture anymore, but instead saying the right words in English, I think that are more true, 
is ancestral sciences and technologies of integrated biosystems management. <laughs> then you have you have a really different orientation to mm -hmm. indigeneity, and you mm -hmm. have an opportunity to share power with indigenous communities, mm -hmm. build things in contemporary spaces that mm -hmm. benefit everyone. I think that's such powerful reframing, Kamala, that because it really does help um, with what seems like a sort of distortion of perception around uh, the value of ancestral wisdom that um, many in the more dominant um, cultures these days are grappling with in terms of how to understand what indigenous knowledge means to the world. And um, I think one of the perceptions, I, I wonder if you share this thought, is that of the noble savage. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how that shows up in society right now and what's different about thinking about things in the way that you just said. Yeah, you know, I think the noble savage framework, I think it's better <laughs> than the ignorant brute. <laughs> it's, a, it's a more so recent and better than a terranolist like we aren't even humans yeah and therefore if indigenous people on the land they're not really people they're like animals so people have the right to claim this land um to like okay well there were people here but they were ignorant and backwards mm -hmm. um, which by the way prevailed when the, in the time when my dad was growing up yeah no right? it, it, it's we were saying that yeah and it's not that long ago yeah, this is my living memory. Yeah. And I'm not 50 yet, so it's something yeah. that's real. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, the next iteration is, well, the noble savage, well, these, which is erasure to acrimony to patronage, <laughs> to pay, like, patron, a patronizing perspective. Like they were so noble and they had done so much and... Um, with the little that they had and like, you know, the land of the backhanded compliment or the romanticization of us. Right. Was like, well, they were so noble and they had everything. And yeah, I, I think what is an important opportunity to reframe is that the practical understanding, equitable understanding of indigeneity and as in the same breath. Mm -hmm. Um, these are systems that were created in hyper-isolation that have hundreds of years of R&D behind them. Mm -hmm. And as some of the last wild people of America, meaning the last to be colonized, right. for the erasure, and, and the Hawaiian experience is absolutely different than the experience in the Americas. And the complete and violent erasure of Native peoples there, I hold in my heart, and it's really brutal. So we are different in our experiences, not in our relationship of, lands, um, of our landscapes. But I think to answer your question, that noble savage still others, and it still creates this idea that those are nice things, but they are off on the side in museum pieces, mm -hmm. or pieces are a thing to mourn. Um, and we want to move into the space like, hey, we're still alive. We are present in the spaces, and many indigenous people, especially in Hawaii, since the Renaissance, have cultivated dual fluencies. We are more and more fluent in the practices of our ancestors, and you forced all of us to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> we can do business plans, we yeah. can do policy, <laughs> and we can do what our 
that our beloved chiefs did when they met new things and they were grounded, they brought them in and they vetted them and they folded them into their practices like they did the printing press right. or the other things that being ubiquitous in Hawaiian society. Yeah, that's the opportunity is for us to go into these things that are brought into our spaces as ideas or physical things and repurpose them to serve in this intentionality to bring back localized abundance. Mm. I want to stay with this point a little bit about um, this idea of ancestral knowledge and it's how it fits into contemporary society. And you mentioned uh, the printing press. I know that Iolani Palace in Honolulu had, had electricity. Yeah. So I, it was really interesting to find out about it that Iolani Palace, which was the, the palace of the governing monarchy of the Kingdom of Hawaii, yeah. had electricity before the White House in Washington, D.C. did, and yeah. that the streets of Honolulu were electrified before the, the capital of the United States was. So it was living in in uh, a blend, a harmony, these modern technologies and the ancient technologies, right? Yep. And that happens because people at that time were still rooted in their food-based practices. Mm -hmm. They were rooted in their connection to land and connection to each other. And when you have this sense of rootedness, you can introduce new things. It also understood that to allow them to continue to be rooted, they had to be adaptive. And they not only brought electricity to Iolani Palace, which was the seat of the Hawaiian monarchy post-contact, but they brought hula back at the same time, which had been banned. And that was both a practical but a high and pragmatic, but a highly political gesture. That mm. like we are not erasing ourselves in the embrace of the new. We're bringing them both back at the same time intentionally. Um, to make a statement, but also to provide sustenance, to provide a standing in national conversations. And to me, it's the opposite of the noble savage narrative. Mm -hmm. It is, um, it's really a humanizing narrative of continuance. Like we should be allowed to continue our practices and adapt to them. Mm -hmm. Incorporate it all. It's the very definition of modern is um, to not have this uh, extractive culture wise linear process of it's this culture then that culture and then some other right. thing but it blends it all together and yeah. provides relevance to it all you said something also about that i'd like to come back to about um contemporary um nor you know circumstances and i think you were talking about global commercial um contemporary norms aren't suited for an island right can you talk about that a little bit more when we say ancestral sciences and technologies, I follow that up with this idea. Like, and I, I'm really clear that indigenous doesn't mean brown people. Indigenous is a point of continuity. Everyone's indigenous to someplace. Um, when you're in a place where indigenous people are, you have the responsibility and honor your own indigeneity to honor their systems, which have been proven to work. So I don't say Western, for example, or Western systems. No, I'm as European as I'm Hawaiian, right? So, so not Western, but contemporary sciences optimize for extraction and they optimize for ownership and they optimize for participating in a global supply chain economy. Ancestral sciences and technologies optimize for calibrating between humans and our living in an ancestral landscape. And they also optimize for regeneration. 
So when we make the case, when we talk about it, it's not just a rejection of contemporary systems because I'm talking to you on a computer that's made with rare metals from China and we're able to come, like it's this idea of not rejecting modernity, but to be able to calibrate how is these tools of modernity and the sciences of modernity, which are pretty neat. There's some pretty badass stuff. Like I have got quantum <laughs> physics and sure. machine learning and artificial intelligence and all those other things, but I'm not fixated on it as what will save us. How do we bring these things in and then learn and base our, 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 our work on the thousands of years of R&D that Pacific Islanders created as we migrated across the Pacific and then the hundreds of years of Hawaiian knowledge that built upon that corpus, which no one can argue, <laughs> allowed a group of people to be living in the most finite and violent biosystem on the face of the earth and bequeath abundance to generations. Mm -hmm. So centering it there allows us to have the language to value what our ancestors knew as science, but not to isolate after that, to say this is the starting point for vetting these new technologies to bring in. And at the end of the day, by understanding, you know, what our ancestral science is solved for, and looking for those metrics that our kupuna used, our ancestors used, to gauge the efficacy of the work. If we hit ancestral metrics, then we are actually uh, um, bringing and using contemporary tools, which are now incredibly powerful, to solve for ancestral proven end goals of being able to be create abundance on in in, in an island in a localized space. Hopefully, it's a really practical approach to guiding how we do our work. Abundance and thriving. Right. And some people call it, uh, I think some terms that are emerging are regenerative. And this idea was also reinforced by the work of Dr. Elika Mauna Kea, mm. the Mauliola study, where Dr. Elika Mauna Kea, along with his peer, Dr. Ruben Juarez, um, worked with students at Mao Farms. They, Dr. Elika Mauna Kea is from Nanakuli Homestead, Native Hawaiian researcher and an epidemiologist, studied the gut biomes of the students in Mao and found that students who worked on a farm were 60% less likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Wow, At that's significant. $15,000 a year, bolstering the creation of this office. So we put in, okay, let's create a center. The end goal of this center is to provide community organizations the hard data to show the efficacy of their work and the impact it's making towards allowing health to be restored to community Leveraging, the, leveraging that hard data so that A, we can move more community organizations off of grant funding mm -hmm. to become line items. B, we can help the university reframe how it does its research. So to ensure that it's not extractive and centering the university as the experts, but it's generative, it's co-owned by the community and it's really affirming the validity of what ancestral practices knew. And these community practitioners, not just as people often who were doing cultural practices, Mm -hmm. but the seat of contemporary innovation and restoration. And the third intention is to reframe how the federal government understands indigeneity, mm -hmm. not just through the language of loss and illness, but can reposition itself as patient capital to invest in these spaces and to, to see that it's necessary to work. 
you know, we've been using the word reframing, but let's just say revitalizing and bringing forward uh, some ideas that make sense in terms of community, but are different than the way um, most governments look at health right now. So uh, one thing you mentioned was um, how their gut biome was different of the students who, uh, the younger people who are living on Ma'a organic farms. Talk a little bit about Ma'a organic farms and what that means and why why you think it was that their their health experience was different. Ma'o Farms is very near and dear to my heart. Um, Ma'o Farms is uh, located in the community of Wai'anae, um, founded by community partners, the founders, Kukui Maunakea Forth and her husband, Gary Maunakea Forth, are really and continue to be pillars of our society and community of Wai'anae. Kukui is of Hawaiian ancestry from Nanakuli Homestead, the granddaughter um, of one of the real matriarchs of the Waianae coast. And for context, the coast of Waianae on the island of Oahu is one of the highest, if not the highest concentration of native Hawaiians in the world. And many of the Hawaiians who live in Waianae though, were Hawaiians were removed from the original context of being tied to these ahupua systems. And as the forces of colonialism moved in, were dispossessed and then resettled on one of the most arid sites of the island. Uh, in communities of homesteads. So Kukui's Ohana is homesteaders and they've been there for like, multiple generations now. So Kukui is really of the land and her husband Gary, he's Pakeha, Caucasian ancestry, but came up from New Zealand, which had a really strong relationship with the Maori native communities there and a strong farming relationship. And together, they're a real force of nature. They founded Ma'o Farms as a way to reunite the two key assets of any community the productive land and the productive youth. So from the beginning, it was a for-profit that was the non-profit that was designed to generate revenue. The mission was to recruit young adults from the Wai'anae community to work on a farm in exchange for that. They would you know, get co-ownership and have these different opportunities and that over time has evolved. So when I moved to Mauer after getting my master's back in 2007. Hmm. What was your master's in? Urban and regional planning and my undergrads in Hawaiian studies. Except. I <laughs> have another degree in being a Hawaiian high school dropout. But that's <laughs> um, the, the evolution of Mauer moved into becoming a social enterprise. The for-profit, uh, the revenue generating side of the organization um, is now... Geez, almost 297-acre organic farm. But the social part of the social, and making it one of the largest, if not the largest organic farm on the highly urbanized island of Oahu. But the social part of the social enterprise is the daily operations of the farm were run by young adults from the community while I was there. And we recruited from our local high schools, Wainai, Nanakuli, and Kamaile. And we asked young adults to commit to putting in 16 hours a week on the farm in exchange for that sweat equity of running Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, running the daily operations of the farm. We provided them a full tuition waiver to college and a starting monthly step into $500. And we asked for a two-year commitment because we try to graduate them on time with their associates and move them on to their baccalaureate degrees. The two metrics we tracked on a daily basis of the farm to sales of product and GPAs of students. So as the farm scaled in both our graduation rates as well as the food that we're producing, we very quickly moved from 
angry Hawaiians to noble savages and shot past noble savages <laughs> to be job creators and degree designers. And those two gave us, it was not only creating opportunities to grow food and to grow young adults, but also create a defensible space around against highly predatory forces. Mm-hmm. That a college degree is imperfect, but in communities like YNI is a pathway out of poverty and back into agency. It also takes them off the market for predatory labor <laughs> to become fodder for foreign wars, like all the other things that they need, you know, brown bodies for. It takes like them off of that market. Cleaning bathrooms and, you know, stuff. Whatever like it is. Right, yeah. <laughs> Carrying heavy shit for rich people. Yeah. Um, and never owning the means of production. It also alienated our, our lands from predatory land-based practices. It took land off the market to become dumps. <laughs> These other things. So we started contemporary agency, but I'll close it. The, the two metrics of sales of product and GPAs were also the same metrics our ancestors used. In the pre-contact society, at the end of every year, there's a ceremony called the Makahiki ceremony. So ancestral society had a non-monetary economy. People and land were capital, not means to capital. So at the end of every year, a chief would come to the valley and there'd be this ceremony where the people would show how much food they produced and how fit they were and how intellectually rigorous they were. And, and now it's called this quaint, oh, it was like, oh, it was this cute fun and games and festival. Actually, if you understand what it really was, it was a year in reporting to your chief where you could do projected actuals and variants. <laughs> you say, this is what we said we we're going to do. This is what we did. Here's the variance. And you got your contract renewed. Hmm. Because in pre-contact society, people didn't write grants and three-year cycles to do the work. It was really, like you, it's easy to talk about how traditional practices work from the lens of investment and business. But the differentiation was that our ancestors in, in these systems were able to create incredible goods and services of incredible value like kalo, lean protein, and fish, and everything, that they're able to create these really robust industries without externalizing the means of production to impact people and land. Mm-hmm. In the growing of our staple crops at scale, we didn't pollute the waterways. In the catching of our fish, we didn't deplete our resources. Um, that translation into English completely repositions traditional practice as what the scared billionaires of the world are looking to drop all their money to invest in because all their wealth has given them is cues and how screwed up they are. And they're looking for investing in things that make sense. It makes zero sense to teach Hawaiians about sustainability. It makes a lot more sense for us to reframe the practices and allow us, our community members, to teach outwards. Mm -hmm. These are the things we know. And how do we bring resources about it so it can be adapted in equity in other spaces, but how do communities own the IP? Mm-hmm. How do we not get screwed out of our knowledge? And I that's the kind of space we're in. So you mentioned the Makahiki, which was actually quite performance-based, if we want to use those terms, that yeah. the ali'i were making sure that the, the Konohiki were managing, the managers were managing to a certain level right. of performance. And there was um, probably a lot of adjustment along the way to make sure it happened. Totally. One thing I want to point out is that there's uh, quite a body of knowledge that the population in Hawaii was fairly, it was a a fairly well-populated set of islands. This this was working 
not just for a small group of people. Um, yeah. It was working for a, a significant population. And this yeah. technology, this intellectual property, these ways of being were, were productive and can be good examples for the rest of the yeah. world, right? Yeah, the pre-contact size was close to our contemporary contact size. And, and like, we are not orders of magnitude bigger. I mean, the, the population now is not orders of magnitude larger than a pre-contact population. We were, you know, we had everything we needed for communities to expand rapidly. And I think that our ancestors weren't magic. I mean, they weren't like, I super don't want to be in the space of glorifying your ancestors. That's as dangerous as demonizing them because there are things about them that are, they're humans. But what they were really good at, and I think it's important to acknowledge is they were good because islands taught them. And they had to be good, <laughs> you know, like, and you can argue the relative merits of people, but you can never argue the merits of the land. Mm-hmm. If the land is your best teacher and is your foremost, and you're really attuned to listening to the land as hyper isolation makes you attuned <laughs> to have to listen to the land because there was no Costco. It was that or starve. So like they, they got really good at things, I think, out of necessity at first, but it got acculturated to being really adept to listening. And people talk a lot about, well, there's bio, like people talk a lot about biomimicry now, and, and that's mm-hmm. what they were doing. But I just raised the question back, well, what's the opposite of what they're doing? I guess if you're not doing biomimicry, then you're doing necromimicry? <laughs> <laughs> Are you mimicking things that have terminal points and that yeah. we all die, yeah. which I think you don't have to answer that question. But that's what we seem to be facing right now, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's the value of it. And it did work and it wasn't perfect. There was a lot of inequity sometimes, I think, in class and in gender because they're people. But the things that did work are, is a really beautiful legacy and it is an opportunity for us to not just co-opt, but it also to engage in a conversation of equity with communities. Um, And if just the cultural parts are taken and implemented without the people there, I can almost guarantee you it's not going to work. It has to be centered and centering in the communities that hold it, but it also can't be an insular inward facing kind of thing, which locks us up from the rest of the world as much as allows us and empowers us to be peers to build peerships and to see how it could be replicated in other places. I think that's the hope and that's the responsibility of this office to translate. Mm-hmm. And it's tricky sometimes because <laughs> the line of co-option versus scaling is super thin. Yeah. Um, but it does require a lot of horizontal eyes on things and creating equitable spaces for people to discuss the approaches. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you're centering this uh, work on health and, but uh, centering health in holistic well-being right right? as as a being connected to aina to lamb and to each other is a really important aspect of of looking at it that's really critical i mean if you take the scientific approach i would put out there microbes in the soil and the biomes in our gut evolve together and then when you slit that symbiosis and you position other things in the microbes hurt and the biomes hurt and that's what dr lika is saying is that when you put them back together And they, well, the symbiosis is restored. That's kind of some of the other work I'm doing. And 
with the same group of developing indigenous AI. Like, what does it mean to um, be able to develop these tools of computation that can do radical things quickly, but not have the source language be English? Like, what does it mean to have these things that understand Hawaiian? Are we doing that relative to the restoration, how tracking how traditional practices restores carbon and restores the living biota of the soil? And this intervention can show that when we start practices on the Center for Indigenous Health Equity shows, gut biome gets restored, and we do the indigenous data science, and we're looking at the soil's work, then microbes get um, restored. We're recentering the rebuild, the building back of native agency mm-hmm. in our traditional stories of the Kumulipo, which is our creation chant. Mm-hmm. It rivals Darwin's origin of species at 16 periods of time, eight of them are pre-humanity, mm. called Wa, and the very first period talks about the microbes. Mm. So we're recentering our work in the first Wa of the Kumulipo. Are we ensuring the biomes of our people are healthy and the microbes in the soil is healthy and building from there? Mm. So it's lofty work, but I figure, okay, we're at the university, we have the opportunity to be exploratory, but also practical. And we have a really powerful corpus of knowledge yeah. that we have a re- responsibility to engage, but also to engage equitably yeah. and talk about ownership and who is the ultimate beneficiary of our ancestral practices are being deployed, should be the lineal descendants, and then everyone else after. Yeah. Um, not just the lineal descendants only, but it should have concentric circles of impact. But recentering back on like when we were removed from the system, everyone got jammed up. So how do we get back to these systems and provide abundance for all centered on our communities? Mm. It has a lyricism and a completeness to it that really that it really sings. It, I think I it's really that. it's really important. So one last question, um, and maybe this comes in the category of vision. So there is a. Uh, a challenge out there called the Aloha Plus Challenge about bringing more uh, local production to Hawaii. And the articulation of a, a reason for it is it's it's a matter of self-sufficiency. It's really um, important for the islands, which are isolated, to be able to feed its own people in times of crisis. But there's, there's probably more to it than that. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that and about uh, reaching that goal and why it's important. No, I really appreciate goals like that. I think it helps um, contemporary, it uses contemporary language and, and governance models that people are familiar with. It puts out a really aspirational goals. Uh, it puts out some really aspirational intentions. And what I like about that is like, it creates this space for communities to come and say, if you really want to do that, we have to do it together. Because um, there's no way it's going to be solved solely from the top and solely from these mandates. So it creates opportunities for co-design and, and co-investment in spaces, whereas before, if the end goal was just growing the GDP, <laughs> regardless of what model we use, you know, there is no, it's not porous and it doesn't really fit well with authentic community engagement. So not being a thousand percent familiar with the details, but having read through it, you know, at the high level, I think it points to the aspirations of those types of initiatives 
point to the validity of ancestral systems that allowed us to be self-sufficient. And it creates a gracious space of inquiry if people are willing to do the work to figure out how do we get there together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. <laughs> attitude, mm-hmm. I think it really sets up a way to actualize that. It requires the community, indigenous communities, to be able to meet um, that initiative on their terms and with their capacities. But I think there is a lot, there is a lot of capacity there, and hopefully, you know, as we continue to have these dialogues, we can figure out a way to have them co-design and integrating with the movements that are happening with indigenous restoration of identity and practice. Mm-hmm. So it becomes really robust. Many thanks to Kamalo Enos for his wisdom, to our sound engineer, Keola Isseri from the University of Hawaii, West Oahu, and to Waipahu High School students, Ashley, Carissa, Erica, Landon, Reiko, and Sid for their many creative talents, and to our sponsor, the Sustainable Community Food Systems Program at the University of Hawaii, West Oahu.